Welcome to Awesome Movie Year, the podcast where we take a look back at an awesome year for movies, which is every year. My name is Josh Bell, film critic and writer, and I am joined by my co-host. I'm Jason Harris, filmmaker, comedian, super sleuth. Have you solved any crimes lately? Um, The streets are safer because... um, well, really, because everyone's mostly staying inside. So I don't, I don't, I don't know, Josh. No, you didn't. No. You didn't solve any mysteries. You're not uh, like uh, Encyclopedia Brown, or, uh... <laughs> or or other various detective Harriet the Spy, maybe. Child sure. Well, detective. she was. She, she was. Was she a spy or a detective? I mean, aren't they all really kind of detectives at that age? They're, I mean, she wasn't going to Russia on secret missions, you know, like wasn't she? On peace missions, but really to ascertain important information for the American government. So maybe that's what'll happen in the reboot of uh, of Harriet. This I think we just sold it, buddy. Yeah, so. there we go. So <laughs> we do have some detectives coming up in this episode, though. We have been talking in this season about the films of 1977, and this episode is my pick for the season, and it's a it's a I don't know, a lesser known film, but it's also, it wasn't necessarily when I was thinking of what to pick. uh, It's not my favorite movie necessarily, but I thought it would be an interesting one for us to talk about. And I do quite like it. It's a movie called The Late Show, written and directed by Robert Benton and starring Art Carney and Lily Tomlin as a pair of detectives in a way. Art Carney is really the detective. Ira Wells is kind of a washed up old PI in the vein of the detectives from movies from the 1940s. And Lily Tomlin is the younger sort of hippie new agey woman who ends up teaming up with him. And he's a bit reluctant on it, but she hires him to find her cat and uh, things escalate from there, I guess you could say. (laughs) Yeah. It's, it's an interesting uh, premise of like what, what would ever happen to these, you know, Philip Marlowe's and everything like that, you know, from the 40s, all these hardened Bogart characters as they age in various forms of grace as we see with him and his old partner. Right. Yeah. It's very much that kind of thing. Like, what if one of those characters got old and had to adapt to the world of the 1970s? And I think it's a lot of fun that way. I actually uh, liked it even more this time watching it than I had the previous time, but uh, we'll get back to that. Uh, It was, I mean, it's kind of a forgotten movie now a bit. I feel like it was forgotten and then it's been revived a little. The reason that I saw it uh, the first time uh, probably a few years ago was because I had read some recent, at the time, articles or uh, reappreciations of this as a movie that that deserves rediscovery. Um, But at the time it was released, it was actually... Uh, fairly successful and acclaimed. Um, I didn't find any box office info for this. I know this season has been spotty in trying to find box office info. Before the 1980s, it can be hard. So uh, I'm not sure exactly how well it did at the box office, but it was very well reviewed and it was nominated for a number of awards. Uh, Lily Tomlin herself was nominated for several acting awards, including the BAFTA and the Golden Globe, and she won Best Actress at the Berlin Film Festival. And the screenplay for this movie, which is very clever, uh, by Robert Benton, was nominated for an Oscar for Best Original Screenplay, as well as for a Writers Guild Award. And it won the uh, Edgar Award, which is a Mystery Writers Association Award 
for screenplay. So well liked at the time and then maybe kind of fell into obscurity and then being rediscovered now. So and, and that's a nice thing that's happening. I think. The movie was nominated for the Golden Bear at the Berlin Film Festival and Art Carney won the National Society of Film Critics Award for Best Actor for it as well. Yeah, it was, uh, I think, and I think it deserved, I mean, obviously, as we've been talking about this season, there were a lot of very good movies, but... Um, hey, Josh. I, yes. When I get a suntan, I'm a golden bear. All right. Uh, how, how long have you been holding on to that one? <laughs> just just thought of it and just... All right. Did, there's no filter sometimes, That's Josh, your, just, that's the sharpness of your mind on display just, right there. Just, just comes and goes and it's out in the ether now, guys. All right. Is this goes right now or comes? Yeah. <laughs> oh, we're like, we're like Art Carney and Lily Tomlin here. David, just, David. just bouncing off each other like that. So, uh, so it was, it was well-reviewed. Roger Ebert was a big fan. He named it his number three movie of 1977. And he said, it's hard enough for a movie to sustain one tone, let alone half a dozen. But that's just what Robert Benton's The Late Show does. It's the story of a strangely touching relationship between two people. It's a violent crime melodrama. It's a comedy. It's a commentary on the private eye genre, especially its 1940s manifestations. It's a study of the way older people do a balancing act between weariness and experience. It's a celebration of that uncharted continent, Lily Tomlin. And most of all, it's a movie that dares a lot pulls off most of it, and entertains us without insulting our intelligence. What's quietly astonishing is that all of it starts with a woman coming to a private eye about a missing cat. Although I feel like the, the concept of the, the case that seems to be very small and simple at first and then expands into this like convoluted conspiracy is a pretty familiar private eye genre thing that had existed before this. Maybe not with animals. Um, as we know, uh, <laughs> Dave is like John Wick super fan. So I thought of that when watching this, like, oh, what a direct correlation between Art Carney and Keanu Reeves. <laughs> sure, sure. Um, I suppose that's, that's possible. Um, but I mean, even I, I don't remember the details of like the Maltese Falcon, but you know, the, the Maltese Falcon itself, it's like, it's the MacGuffin, it's the thing, it's just a statue that is, has been lost or stolen or something. And then it, it expands from there into this labyrinth of, right. of right. betrayals and murders and whatnot. And that, and that's sort of the prototypical 1940s detective movie. Right. It's a trope and it, it takes you deeper and deeper until we have the, big scene at the end where the gumshoe gets to go, here's what happened, see? It started right. here and tangled and weaved its way through all these twists and turns, and now we're here, you know, that type of thing. <laughs> yeah, and then you you hear that whole thing and it still doesn't make any sense. Right, <laughs> right. But that's okay, that's not the point. Pauline Kale in The New Yorker was a little more mixed. Uh, she spends most of her review talking about how great Lily Tomlin is, uh, which she is, but uh, in a general sense on the film, she says... The Late Show doesn't quite pay off the way a thriller is expected to, in thrills. It pays off in atmosphere, spooking us by the flip, greedy ordinariness of the evil. Robert Benton's nostalgia for the genre works imaginatively in every detail of the film. What he lacks is low cunning. Working in the thriller genre, he's a sensitive craftsman infatuated with a painted whore. 
The Late Show is fast and exciting, but it isn't a thriller exactly. It's a one-of-a-kind movie, a love-hate poem to sleaziness. And I don't think I wanted this movie to be more like action-oriented or something, but uh, she seems to think it falls apart as a thriller. Um, I could understand that. I actually think the action sequence, the car chase kind of mid-movie is really kind of great. And I wouldn't have minded Mm -hmm. one or two more sequences like that. So, you know, let's paint these whores up, Pauline. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Uh, I agree that the car chase with uh, the the van that Lily Tomlin is driving and they're they're driving through a suburban street and knocking over white picket fences and stuff is is quite entertaining. And I I had forgotten that there was uh, an impressive car chase in the middle of this mostly kind of more low-key movie. But I feel like part of why it works is because it's surprising. All of a sudden, it's like a car chase? What? And you don't expect that. But if it was a more action-filled movie, you might uh, that might lose some of its effect. So... I'm just saying, you know, Polly and Kale has a valid opinion, but you, Josh, over here, <laughs> you can say she is worthless all you want. I don't understand it. I think she's, mm. um, you know, she's proven her worth time and again. But, you know, whatever, Josh. Yeah. No, Polly and Kale, very, uh, very smart and insightful critic. <laughs> Charles Champlin in the L.A. Times <laughs> said, Here, as in so different a film as Butch Cassidy, There is that edgy sense of men, or a man, having strayed out of one era into another, less congenial, of having outlived a period. It lends an overtone of melancholy, which Robert Benton converts into an even warmer affection for the Art Carney character. For all its obvious and careful make-believe, The Late Show works, as the best of the private detective stories have always worked, because there is a vivid and sympathetic central character to root for. Like Spade and Marlowe, Carney's Ira Wells is a man of honor, left battered and nearly broke by an indifferent and ungrateful world, but still honor-bound to risk his life to see rough justice done, even when his ulcers bleed and the leg stiffens and his landlady reaches the end of her patience and threatens to toss him in the street. And, and I agree that, especially as the plot gets more and more confusing and convoluted and, and you kind of lose track of it, that the real appeal here is not only the Art Carney character, but the Lily Tomlin character too, and the way they interact. That's what make the, makes the movie work. Yeah, it does lose momentum. The first 45 minutes are really fun, and then you're like, uh, huh? You know? <laughs> but yeah, you go along with it because of the characters. Right. It, 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 there is a, a level of that, huh, reaction, I think, as the as the plot twists pile up and they're confusing and the character relationships, not the central character relationships, but the kind of supporting character relationships are changing or shifting. I still found it fun throughout. I think I felt more that way the first time that you're describing where it, it, it lost a bit of steam for me and I was expecting to maybe uh, feel that way again. But I had fun for with it the whole time this time. Uh, and I had seen it, like I said, it wasn't that long ago, maybe a few years ago when I had read something somewhere about it being this underappreciated gem. And so I decided to check it out and, uh, I still think it's a, it's a, it's a gem and I'm, I'm glad that I picked it. So Jason, I assume you'd never seen this before. I didn't, I've never seen it and I didn't know this movie, you know, so, um, I'm glad you picked it too. You're, you're really leaning into these mysteries lately on your picks between this and, uh, 1996 Lone Star. You know, we got a... Josh is our mystery man here, Dave. 
<laughs> that is true. Yeah, I hadn't thought about those connections. And and Lone Star actually, in a weird way, is another movie that that gets a bit convoluted. And it's not comedic like this, but it's a movie that's really driven by the characters more so than the right. mystery. And a man uh, out of time in a in a certain way who adheres to old school values that don't necessarily fit in the world that he lives in anymore. That is true. You know, I hadn't made yeah. all these connections, but I, I appreciate that insight, Jason. You're like you're like Pauline Kale. I mean, you know, I try to <laughs> I try to live up to the excellent standards she set, whether or not there are haters out there like you. Mm -hmm. <laughs> that's, that's so so admirable of you. So, uh, Dave, and you, and you watched this, but I assume you hadn't seen it before. No, I, I had never seen it. I I, I remember the. Uh, the artwork somehow i remember seeing that before and when i when i looked the movie up i was like oh yeah i remember this movie but i, I never saw it yeah it has a cool poster if you uh, look on uh on imdb or letterboxd you can see the kind of painted uh poster with with art carney and lily tomlin that is it it's it's evocative it doesn't necessarily look like a 1940s detective movie poster but it does yeah. it does give you this kind of uh sense of what the uh the tone of the movie i suppose mm -hmm. so uh yeah not a lot of other jason did you have any other background things uh to share here the the only other other one i saw was you mentioned uh ebert had it at number three for the year and yeah. siskel had it at number two for the year only oh. behind annie hall yeah of course siskel and ebert uh had yet to team up I think in 1977, but uh, clearly already on the same wavelength in a lot of ways. Just like us, buddy. <laughs> Just like us. <laughs> yes, they're they're really we are we are really the the Siskel and Ebert of the the 20s. I guess local podcasting. <laughs> Right. Local <laughs> man, you're you're really you're really selling a short local podcasting. Come on. Regional? We're global, man. Oh, global okay. podcasting. Oh, yeah. I'll print I'll print out these stats if you need. They're they're from all over the world. We place. do have listeners all over the world. And we love them all. <laughs> we uh, do. We don't yeah. just like our local listeners. We want people to listen from anywhere. In, in fact, we despise many of our local listeners. <laughs> man, they're we the were doing ones. well there and you just had to <laughs> No, we love everybody. We want more listeners. We, we, we do. And we want you to continue listening when we come back in a moment and talk about our general thoughts on The Late Show. Welcome back to Awesome Movie Year. In this episode of our season on the films of 1977, we're talking about my pick, which is Robert Benton's The Late Show. And I feel like maybe this is just me because I'm insecure, but always with these personal pick episodes, I get a little apprehensive about, uh, is Jason going to like this movie that I picked or is he going to be uh, angry at me for making him watch some thing that he hated? But it sounds like, Jason, that you liked it at least well enough. No, I wouldn't be angry at you unless no, you picked something so ridiculous like The Frighteners when there's so many other great movies <laughs> But um, no, it's all, I, it's all right. I didn't love it. I was loving it in the first half and then it kind of, like I said, fell apart. But it made me want to just like consume everything that art carney has ever done man that guy is an actor huh i mean and we all i mean you know so, like someone like me you know i know him from obviously the honeymooners and you know seeing that kind of like iconic performance which is big comedy right and um uh i knew he won an oscar and um 
I probably saw what was it going in style the George Burns movie with him back. Yeah, then. yeah, I've seen that one as well, and that was that was from this same period where he had this kind of resurgence as a movie actor in the seventies. Oh man, he is so great. He's he's just awesome. Like I loved watching him in this thing. Yeah, he's really good, and and it's interesting because, like you said, he's known for that broad comedy. I mean, he's still mainly known for the Honeymooners, but yet what he's doing is playing Humphrey Bogart or you know, someone like that, one of these 1940s detectives. And I don't know, I don't think Humphrey Bogart was alive, but I'm sure there were some actors from that era who were still around. Robert Mitchum, maybe, or something like that. There you go. Yeah, exactly. Robert Mitchum, I definitely was still, he was still working into the 90s, I think, maybe. Um, I don't know, or he was dead. Uh, but one way or another, <laughs> no, I, I, he was alive. I'm almost positive. Yeah, but but I mean, I think you're right. Yeah, most likely him, and I'm sure others that they could have cast. And I don't know what Robert Benton was looking at in terms of casting this movie, but I think Art Carney really captures that well. That he is able to capture the comedy here, and this is definitely a comedy. There's a lot of comedic stuff going on here, but it's not just broad comedy. It's not a sitcom. It's not the honeymooners. And he captures that as well as he captures that weary sense of like the gumshoe um, in being out of touch with the world and having been beaten down by life over the course of decades. So uh, yeah, I agree with you. I think his performance is great. And I think Lily Tomlin is great too. And the performances, I mean, they come from very different places, not just because of their ages, but because of sort of the environment in which they began their careers. And yet they meet sort of in the middle in this movie and they play off each other really well. And I love Lily Tomlin, but, you know, I thought she could have, the part could have even gone further out. You know, she plays it in a very grounded way, but that character is, you know, talking always about, you know, whatever good vibrations, hippy-dippy stuff she's talking about. And I, I thought it... You know, it offered itself um, against his grounded performance to go a little further out. But who am I to tell Lily Tomlin what to do? It'd be like you telling Pauline Kale how to write, Josh. (laughs) No, I definitely So, But but I did think, like, it did offer that chance for a little more comedy had she not played it as close to the vest as she did. But, hey, man, Lily Tomlin's great. So, you know, that's my minor criticism, and I feel bad about myself now. No, you shouldn't. I mean, I I think... She could have gone broader, certainly, but I think this movie isn't aiming to be a broad comedy. And and Lily Tomlin still at this time, I mean, she'd been in Nashville a couple years earlier, and that was her big sort of dramatic breakthrough. But she was still probably mostly known for her stand-up comedy and sketches and that kind of stuff. So I, I wonder if maybe she's trying to demonstrate a little more range here. And I don't think that that's a bad thing. I think the way that it underplays some of the comedy makes it funnier. I think I I laughed at this movie more this time, maybe because I had a, an idea of that drier humor that I was going to see, whereas maybe the first time I expected it to be sort of a broader comedy like you're talking about with those two stars. So yeah, I liked that about it. I I, I like the way that she is, she is sort of a hippie and this is 1977. So we're, we're getting really to the end of the era of the hippies. So in a way she's sort of a throwback, but she's, she's on the cusp between like the hippie and sort of the the new agey person that you imagine from like the 1980s. And she's she's on the threshold there. And I, I love the way that she is, she has like 
10 different jobs every time she's talking. She's like, oh, I'm an actress. Well, I'm a manager of this singer. Well, I'm a dress designer. I, and she's also a drug dealer. And um, <laughs> she wants to be a private detective eventually. But just uh, marijuana the, as far as I could tell, right? Just marijuana. That's true. And so. she she's very offended when it's implied that she is a drug dealer. But she, in fact, is selling drugs to people. So I feel like that's yeah. the definition of that. Well, there's, a, you know, there's that line in there that... Uh, that Carney says is Ira Wells about LA when he's talking to her about the, the dames of the forties, the women, the cokeheads, right? And he says, uh, well, this place doesn't change. They just push the names around. And I kind of thought about that when you're just talking about the character. Is she hippie? Is she new age? LA was always kind of this like, uh, ethereal world where free spirits kind of gravitated to. So, you know, it's less about defining her and more about like, Hey, you can kind of go for whatever you want out there. Yeah, I saw, and I can't remember now where it was. It might have been just some uh, some random letterboxed review where someone says, uh, you know, coming at it from a contemporary perspective that these are the kind of people that you can still find in L.A., most likely in Reseda, I think they say. I don't I don't know enough about it. <laughs> well, I mean, it's, it is a long day living there. That's, oh, there you go. That's, mm-hmm. that's about the extent of our knowledge of Reseda, I suppose. Um, <laughs> But yeah, I mean, I like that that line that you mentioned about they just they just push the name names around. One of the nice bits of showing their connection is that he says that to her kind of when they first meet. And then later in the movie, she says it as if it's her own insight to her client, her singer that she's managing that we never see that she's just talking to on the phone. So she sort of internalized this thing that he's told her. And this is definitely a good L.A. movie. I mean, it really makes use of L.A. as a setting as kind of informing the characters. I mean, it's cliched to say this, you know, the the setting is a character about We say often. it a lot, but when we but it's usually when a movie succeeds in this regard like Lone Star did, right? And Sure. You know, we talked about that car chase. I think that car chase works great because it's suburban LA and it's like, you know, you're in the sprawl, but they're so bunched together and everyone's just trying to go for whatever American dream they can, you know. So um, I agree with you. Like um, the sun drenched kind of LA feel like works perfectly for this. Yeah. And we've got the backdrop of the entertainment industry. One of the great, again, background jokes is there's this character, Charlie, who's sort of, he's a bartender and he's also kind of a shady criminal informant figure. He's a guy that, that Ira has known for years. But he's also a talent agent, which is why Lily Tomlin's character knows him to begin with. And when we see him introduced in his office building and there's a, a sign with all of the offices in the building and they're all him. It's like Charles Harwell talent, Charles Harwell enterprises. And it's just <laughs> it's it's this great way of illustrating the kind of sleazy, shady characters that populate this world in L.A., um, including in, you know, in the entertainment industry, but sort of in the, in the periphery of it as well. So he's he's like the casting agent who's like, you just have to pay me 200 bucks for your video, you know, like that will shoot and send out for you. Um, (laughs) But you know, I like that. I thought he was good. It's Bill Macy, not the William H. Macy that we know. Right. But um, that was one of my issues with the movie is like the whole first half hour is mostly their interaction and all the interaction with Carney and um, Lily Tomlin almost comes through the Macy character. Right. And then he disappears for the next 45 minutes. And uh, 
that kind of bummed me out because I thought he was very good and I thought they're, you know, the gumshoe who plays by all the rules and the the kind of informant who will cheat at any time he can. Like, that was a good juxtaposition, a good kind of uh, tete-a-tete. So I was, I was bummed out that he was gone for so long. Yeah, I agree. I, I do like that dynamic, especially among the three of them, is really good. There's a scene in the bar where they're all talking and then they're, you know, he's serving drinks and, and Art Carney is drinking his Alka-Seltzer that he drinks throughout the movie. And Lily Tomlin comes in and she's so flustered and she's angry at them because they're making her come up with money to pay off this guy. And she insists on a Coke and he gives her a Pepsi and she's all mad about having a Pepsi instead of a Coke. It's just, it was a nice little interplay. You could see this as like a dynamic that could go on. And he does come back. And and I think maybe part of what the reason is that he goes away for a while is because when he comes back, he's kind of now at odds with them in a bit of a way because he's so sleazy that he's decided he's going to sell them out. Um, and so we have to kind of let him go away to, to do that. But yeah, a lot of the supporting performances are really good. I love the, the villain, ultimately, of this movie, the the fence, who also his wife is cheating on him, and uh, it's very confusing. But he starts out, we introduce him as he's just a guy who, who sells stolen goods, and he's so affable, even as he's threatening Ira uh, with, with harm, and he keeps trying to bribe him with all of these very 1970s, like, consumer goods that he has in his house that are, have been stolen from various places, the hi-fi with the record changer and the eight track. And I love that he just feels like he can solve any problem by bribing somebody with some sort of thing that he's stolen. And of course, you missed the most important point on him is he's always wearing one piece velour leisure suits. And he does have a great look. Yes. And I watched it and I was like, oh man, I just see my next fashion right there. <laughs> gotta, gotta bring back the one piece velour leisure suits. Maybe a, a button down and an ascot underneath. But man, I loved it. And he had, of course, the embroidered... Uh, RB in there for Robert Birdwell, you know. So, but yeah, it did. It, and and his his kind of bodyguard Lamont was it Lamar or Lamont? I think or, it's Lamar. Yeah. Yeah, he was kind of uh, an interesting character too, in that he was so fashion conscious and um, also just like would take any turn to be sleazy. But um, again, like they kind of get lost in the shuffle, you know. So that that's my main criticism, and I think you've alluded to it, is that the, the the waters do get muddy after those first 15 or 20 minutes, and you're like, oh, this is fun, and there's a shootout, and uh, all this fun stuff, and Art Carney is just killing it, and but yeah, that that's kind of where it lost me. But I mean, I liked it; it was fun to watch. So yeah, I mean, plot wise, it does get a little lost, and I agree. And and then as I was saying, there is that scene that you were talking about at the end where. Ira basically lays out what really happened, like it's an Agatha Christie story or something. And even at that point, I thought, I don't think I quite follow this. Yeah. And and I didn't mind. And again, I think maybe the first time that was more frustrating to me and coming into it this time expecting that, I was more able to just kind of go along with the fun aspects of it and, and the supporting characters. And I, I did enjoy uh, Art Carney's landlady, who is so this like sweet old lady and is so... I mean, that, that LA Times review alludes to the fact that she's going to kick him out, but she's very indulgent of all of the people who are getting shot around her. It's exciting. <laughs> she, 
for she really it takes quite a few of them before she decides to kick him out and even then she's very apologetic about it so yeah and that's uh ruth nelson who was a one of the charter members of the group theater which was like stella adler's theater in new york which uh you know major major influence on american acting that whole group so yeah she was fun that was like her first role on screen in like 30 years i read yeah, yeah, I think since 1948. So that's so she's somebody that that made a uh, that we were like we were talking about that they recruited maybe from from actual 1940s cinema um, to represent that era uh, on screen here. So I, I guess I just I I, fe- I felt like there were so many little touches, whether they were small characters or background details, little jokes, even morbid jokes. The the bit where uh, they go to the apartment of uh I don't even remember see I don't know one of the one of the goons who has been murdered and they're looking around trying to figure stuff out and they find Joanna Cassidy's character the the sultry sort of femme fatale character of this movie who's hiding in the shower with a gun and Art Carney's talking to her and he sends Lily Tomlin into the kitchen to get her a drink and she opens the refrigerator and there's the dead guy in the refrigerator um just kind of stuffed in there but it's a background thing and she doesn't see him and I I felt like that was again a a, a way that the the comedy was underplayed in a in a funny way that made me laugh at something obviously really horrifying a dead guy stuffed in a refrigerator but i laughed at it so that was very good that was very good scene because it it ratcheted up the tension because she didn't see it right and you're like are they gonna see it and meanwhile cardi and joanna cassidy are having their conversation elsewhere and it really like kind of made you focus on two things at once so I like that a lot. By the way, it's Ronnie Birdwell, not Robert Birdwell, as I'd say. Oh, yeah, that's true. But RB, you're right. He has that monogrammed on all of his uh, all of his great outfits, including his very thin bathing suit that he wears in the scene when they confront him in baby. the pool. And I was I was briefly, even though I knew this wouldn't happen, I was briefly worried we were going to see some uh, some little Birdwell there as he got out of the pool. <laughs> Look at that. And, Obviously, we're not going to have that in a movie in 1977, but uh, it was very skimpy what he was wearing. And then later, Art Carney describes him as a beached porpoise in that uh, in that scene, which I thought was an effective. He has some great lines, Art Carney, you know, like Lily Tom, just the way he says, not even just the gumshoe stuff, but like Lily Tomlin says, you know, she talked to her therapist about him and he says, what'd you say? And he said, I told him you you were cute. And the way he just responds, you told him I was cute. Like it's so (laughs) incredulous, like and uh, unfathomable that that's what she went with. And then some of his like kind of, you know, uh, sleuthy retorts are fun. Like when he's talking to like the landscaper and like, he was like kind of a burnout. The the guy's like, you look kind of old to be a cop. And he just fires like, Oh, don't worry. This is just a disguise. You know, and yeah. it's like, <laughs> what? You know, just fun stuff like that. So. Yeah. There's a lot. I felt like the dialogue was so sharp throughout the movie that again, even when I wasn't sure what was happening, I was still, uh, entertained by that. Um, and I love in in the dynamic too between Art Carney and Lily Tomlin. I feel like if this movie was made, uh, maybe even in in 1977, but especially now, we would expect that if there's a male character and a female character, they're going to have some kind of romantic tension or something like that, even with the age difference. And there's none of that. It's very much just like a friend dynamic that they develop. You know, it's this buddy cop thing, but it's just about mutual respect and the banter between the two of them. And uh, and I liked that a lot. I thought it was. It was, it was like a, a paternal thing almost that he gets with her rather than a romantic thing. Well, and it wouldn't, even though she calls him cute. 
It's also a paternal thing for, or a maternal thing. She has to take care of him in a lot of ways as well. That's true. They have a mutual uh, protectiveness over uh, over each other. And, uh, and of course, she's also protective of her cat. We can't, can't forget. That's another thing that kind of is funny in the first half of the movie, where no matter what crazy things are happening and they're getting shot at, and she's always just wondering, where is the cat? And then they find the cat, and it's kind of a little anticlimactic. Yeah, it is. But uh, in that first half, I think I wanted to bring up one more line, which is just like, like such a perfect 1940s detective line. When his part, the first guy you see, Harry, like who comes in and that kind of starts the case, and um, Ira thinks he's drunk again, right? And he says, they're going to have to put a night shift on Jack Daniels just to keep up with you. <laughs> like That's such a good <laughs> like gumshoey line. So... Yeah. yeah, it's uh, it's great. And I did like I just wanted to like, kind of circle back to something that you said when he talks about the the dames in the 40s all coked up. And of course, a movie in the 1940s would not show anyone coked up. So even not only in the way that this movie shows the 70s, but because it's in the 70s, it can depict the 40s in a way that's maybe grittier and more honest than a movie from that actual period would. So I like that about it, too, the contrast there. Uh, yeah, I mean, it worked for the 70s. You're right. Like they're in a porn theater at one point in time. So, you know. yeah, exactly. They 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 track down uh, Charles, the, the sleazy agent informant when the bad guys are, are threatening him and, and wanting to bribe him. He is, of course, in a in an adult theater. And there's a great funny bit in there, too, because they're they're sitting Birdwell and, and Lamar sit on either side of him and they beat him up and they threaten him and then he agrees to help them and Birdwell gets up and leaves and Lamar is just sitting there watching the porn and <laughs> he has to be prompted to get up and leave. So again, a, a, just a funny little throwaway bit that I like there. Yeah. Should we rate this thing, Josh? Yeah. You want to rate it out of, uh, what is a gumshoe? Like, is it an actual thing? Where did that term come from? Uh, I don't is know where having turn for but having gum on your shoe. We could rate it out of uh, five Alka-Seltzer based beverages. That makes more sense. Yes. I was wondering if he was ever putting Alka-Seltzer into like vodka, but I think it's always water. It looks like it's always water, but I would have been fine with that also. You know. So, yeah. I mean, because, you know, Josh, you normally you always go dark. You probably would have wanted to rate it out of five perforated ulcers, which is oh, what the yeah. character has. But let's do it out of uh, Alka-Seltzer based uh, beverages. I, I'm going to give it a straight three. I was loving it and then it just lost momentum, but you know, still enjoyed it. And, uh, man, Art Carney, what a pleasure. Yes, he is. I'm going to give it a three and a half. I think I gave it three the first time I saw it, but, uh, just as, just as with, uh, three women that we talked about recently and Robert Altman is a producer on this. Um, I think I appreciated it more this time when I had a better sense of what to expect. So I'm going to give it a three and a half out of five. Dave, what do you want to rate this? I'll go with a three. And do you guys want to know uh, why it's called a gumshoe? Yes. Well, of course we do. Well, it turns out uh, that in the eight, the late 1800s, uh, these kinds of shoes were made out of a rubber. They were like the early version of sneakers. And they made it possible to sneak around quietly because it didn't make much noise. And so that's... So, they, so it is an actual sneak shoe. In. Yeah. All right. Know. See, that was what I was wondering. It was, it was like an actual object that we could rate the movie. Well, why is that it a really... gumshoe? I don't, I don't know. Well, gum, like it's rubber. Gum, gum. Rubbery gum. Yeah. 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 Um, Not gum that you chew uh, in your mouth, but like rub. Yeah. Not a gum chew. No. Oh, that's that. That's. Was that another one just off the top of your head there, Jason? And we'll be right back with the legacy. <laughs> <laughs> 
of The Late Show. Welcome back to Awesome Movie Year. In this episode of our season on the films of 1977, we've been talking about my pick for the year, which is Robert Benton's The Late Show, which I quite enjoyed, and I think uh, Jason and Dave uh, sort of enjoyed. So I feel like my insecurity has been uh, uh, allayed for one more season. That's a bummer. That's the most important thing. So in terms of the legacy, this was Robert Benton's second film as a director, and he's not necessarily a major figure of cinema, but he went on to make a number of films all the way through the the 2000s as a writer and director. Certainly the thing he's best known for directing-wise is Kramer vs. Kramer, which was a big Oscar-winning film. Which I've never seen. Have you seen that, Jason? It's amazing, and, and you know we talk, You're right. He's not a major figure, and it's possibly because he, you know, is a little more sporadic. But maybe he should be. Like, dude, like Kramer versus Kramer is an awesome movie, and of course he won the best director and best adapted screenplay for it. But he also won uh, uh, best original screenplay for Places in the Heart in the '80s, right? And. Uh, he was nominated three other times, Bonnie and Clyde, and then, like we said, The Late Show, and then uh, Nobody's Fool, which I know we've mentioned here before, the Paul Newman movie in the 90s that we said was worth revisiting. But, dude, what a track record there. Th- five Oscar nominations for writing, and you win two of them, plus a director award? Like, that's pretty awesome. Yeah, I think maybe he is a bit underappreciated, and um, I haven't seen Kramer versus Kramer. I haven't seen Places in the Heart, and... Uh, he did a couple of movies with Paul Newman in the 90s, uh, Nobody's Fool and also Twilight, that were kind of the like late period resurgences. In a weird way, like what we get with Art Kearney in this movie was kind of what Paul Newman had with those movies in the 90s. And I, I haven't seen either of those either, but both of them I think are worth seeing there. I remember they were certainly very well regarded at the time. Sadly, the only other Robert Benton movie I've seen is The Human Stain his adaptation of a, um, a Philip Roth novel from like 2007 or somewhere around there yeah. uh, with An- with Anthony Hopkins, which is not a very good movie. Well, Kramer versus Kramer also won Best Picture 1979, but I do want to see Twilight, um, Team Jacob all the way, guys. But um, <laughs> no, this, yeah, it's a different one, but it's another detective story. I think you had just said that. So like, it would be interesting to like put that against this, you know, so and uh um, but yeah, I don't know, man. He also co-wrote Superman. You know, Carney had won the uh, Oscar a few years before in 1974 for Harry and Tonto, which I haven't seen. But look at the look at who he beat. He beat Pacino in Godfather 2, who I personally would have voted for. Albert Finney in Murder on the Orient Express. Dustin Hoffman in Lenny, which is amazing. And Jack Nicholson in Chinatown. So, I mean, dude, that's a strong, strong list of actors in some of their greatest roles right there. Yeah, that is impressive. And and I think we we forget, as I was looking him up, you know, we know him from the Honeymooners, but he did have this really big resurgence in the 70s and the early 80s as a movie actor where he had never done that. He had done uh, TV and he had done stage work. But if you look at his filmography, he's got a couple small parts from like the 40s and then nothing in movies until the 70s when he became this 
acclaimed performer kind of later in his life. And I've only, I've seen Going in Style, um, which I, I watched sadly because there was a terrible remake a couple years ago. Uh, the one but, with, but the with, original's uh, good though, as I think. Yeah, it's, an, it's, a, it's a weird 70s thing. It's another movie that I think I went in expecting one thing and I got an entirely different thing. And maybe I would like it more if my expectations were adjusted. But it's a great showcase for these older guys, for, for Art Carney and George Burns and, and Lee Strasberg, who's the third uh, kind of member of this trio of, of old guys who decide to, to pull off a heist. So yeah, Carney had had quite the amazing career over the course of many many decades, right. and 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 managed to to keep it going all the way until later in his life. And he died in two thousand three, so he had you know he had quite a long life. Yeah, and and you alluded to it. He, I think he was working theater, you know, that entire time. I know he did the Odd Couple with Mathal and Klugman, so he might have been the original Odd Couple, right? Him and Mathal. I don't know. We'd have to look that up, or is it Lemon? I don't know. How Lemon and Mathal and Carney all, but you know, like that was a major, major run. And yeah, there was Art Carney Place. They named a, a street after him in Yonkers. Oh, you well, know, that's the so. most important thing. No, the most important thing, Josh, is that he's an honorary lifetime member of the Florida Water and Pollution Control Operators Association, which of course <laughs> is referencing his character in The Honeymooners. Oh, right, because he works uh, on the on sewers, right? Is he yeah. Some sort Norton, of, or, right? Yeah. He's yeah. A sewer Norton. There you yeah, go. Yeah. yeah. Uh, <laughs> Lily Tomlin, of course, has had amazing uh, career and is still quite successful. I mean, she's had, I don't know if you could call it a resurgence because she's worked consistently, but certainly working on Grace and Frankie on Netflix, which is a very, very popular sitcom with her and Jane Fonda has brought her quite a new audience. And, and she's done well balancing the comedy with, with some more dramatic stuff. Um, another kind of late period thing for her a few years ago, a movie called Grandma that was quite good, uh, where she plays this uh, older woman helping her granddaughter uh, get an abortion, uh, played by Julia Garner, who is uh, quite a up-and-coming star at the moment. So obviously Lily Tomlin is great and 80 years old and still working steadily. So good for her. She's always been great. And I think watching her stage shows from around this time, like, I don't know if they're revolutionary, but like, man, did they propel and influence not just women comedians, but all comedians and, um, you know, singular performers with one person shows. She's, she's just a major talent. We know that. So, yeah, yeah. She's, she had, she would perform in Vegas at the Smith center here a, a handful of times. I remember trying to figure out a way to go cover those shows and I never got a chance to, but I'm, I'm imagining that even now seeing her on stage is probably pretty amazing. I would love to do that. Um, I don't think, I, yeah, I've never seen her either, but um, you know, what movie is popping into my mind and it kind of got famous uh, in some ways for the wrong reasons on YouTube for the fight that she had with the director, David O. Russell, but another gumshoe movie, I Heart Huckabees, which she's also great in, you know? Yeah. And that's a movie that obviously subverts all of those uh, ideas in a, in a more extreme way than this movie does. But uh, she is great in that. And I think, uh, yeah, that's the thing is that she's she's this great stage performer, but she can absolutely bring out dramatic acting chops whenever she wants oh, yeah. to, even if it's just kind of sporadic. Yeah. Weirdly, this, this movie inspired a TV series in uh, 1985. And I was trying to find more information about this. Uh, it was a very, very short-lived show 
called Eye to Eye that aired on ABC. And the best I could find on YouTube was like a 15 second promo for it that doesn't look anything like this movie at all. And it is the only same thing about it is that it has an older detective and a younger woman. But in this case, they're meant to be father and daughter. No, 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 no. They're not father and daughter. It's the father's partner was murdered and the murdered partner's daughter teams up with the old partner now. Oh, okay. Yeah. You know what? I think I, I read that kind of wrong there, but it's a different dynamic. And Charles Durning plays the older character, which I think seems like great casting to me. And Stephanie Ferrasi, who I'm not familiar with, plays the younger woman. But I can't imagine that it captured the sense uh, that this movie captures to the point where I almost didn't believe that it was true. It's, it's listed on Wikipedia, which you always have to kind of verify. And I was Googling it and I did find like an LA Times article from 1985 when this the show first premiered that mentions that it's based on The Late Show. So it is, but it, it, it just seems like why did they even say that if there's really no relation to it at all? I mean, because why do people reboot stuff that has nothing to do with the original just to say that you can do it? So I guess. And they don't even use the title. And it's a, tra- it's a trailblazer for today. Right. For everything <laughs> happening now. Trailblazer for a terrible idea. You know, and in our own work, the three of us collaborated on a film noir short film, Rick Thunder and Look Back Tomorrow, that you could say kind of tries to, you know, uh, like play with the genre tropes in the same way that something like this does. Obviously, it's a short film. It's six minutes. It's done nicely for itself at film festivals. But whenever I watch a fun film noir, I like, uh, you know, I'm like, yeah, the, the the groundwork had obviously been laid for us very nicely by a lot of other talented people. And uh, we um, uh, took it way down. We took it like they had a high level and we we just lowered the bar for everybody. But the three of us worked on it. So I thought it was worth mentioning. Yeah, we've mentioned it before. Um, no, it's a, it's a lot of fun. And this movie clearly, I, I thought of, as I was watching this movie, I thought of Shane Black a lot. Right, right. Especially Definitely. Kiss, Kiss, Bang, Bang and the Nice Guys. I mean, he, I imagine he must be influenced by this movie because it's very much in, those, in that same vein. Yeah. I also thought of uh, The Big Lebowski a little bit as yeah, well. Yeah, yeah, I can see and, that. And like kind of just taking, like making the same kind of story, but then also self, you know, referential and all that kind of the other one, The other one to me was Brick, which is a little heavier, Ryan Johnson's first movie, but that kind of uh, high school noir where he's really playing with the form. Yeah, I think this is a movie that maybe was more influential than we realize. And just, just sort of like randomly, I noticed that uh, looking at this on, on, on Letterboxd, Two of the top three reviews. So the top review of this movie on Letterboxd is from filmmaker Josh Trank, a favorite <laughs> of the Piecing It Together podcast, uh, sure. director of Chronicle and Fantastic Four, and the most recent, uh, the recent Capone, who says, Lily Tomlin and Art Carney make the most randomly awesome team ever in one of my favorite films, which I recommend to anyone who loves oddball cinema. So Josh Trank, big fan of this movie. And then right below him was a review by Eugene Roche's granddaughter, Alison Roche. Eugene Roche, of course, the actor who plays Birdwell in this movie. So I don't know. That's not really a significant legacy, but I just thought it was it was cool that the, the people contributing to the discourse about this movie were actually, you know, in the film industry there. That is cool, buddy. That's a good Thanks. way to put a bow on it. All right. I appreciate that. <laughs> Thanks for that uh, validation. Yeah, That's well, what this episode is all we're about. We're all trying to make you feel all right. 
So. Yeah, thank you so much. So uh, did you have any other you, legacy you want to mention, Jason? No, you put a bow on it, Josh. The All right, there. well, there's the bow then. And yeah. that is The Late <laughs> Show. And that is this episode of Awesome Movie Year. You can follow us on social media. Yeah, you can. Um, Jason Harris Comedy, Facebook, Instagram, J. Harris Comedy on Twitter. Go for Jason.com. Not great. However, go for Jason, my letterbox name. Pretty good. I would yeah. suggest following me on there. Awesome Movie Year on Facebook and Instagram. Awesome Movie Pod on Twitter and awesomemovieyear.com. I am at joshbellhateseverything.com, at joshbellhateseverything on Facebook, and at Signalbleed on Twitter and on Letterboxd. So you can follow me on Letterboxd as well. Letterboxd is great. We love and Letterboxd. We do. Sponsor us, Letterboxd. <laughs> Please do. That's like, who was the last person? I think it was the, the Criterion channel that we last begged to sponsor us. So Those would yeah. be good sponsors. Yeah, highbrow taste there. So, Also, you can listen to our producer, David Rosen's awesome podcast, Piecing It Together. You can find us anywhere you listen to podcasts and on social media at PiecingPod. And unfortunately, our letterbox is under my own name by David Rosen. So That's not unfortunate. There. Follow David well, there, too. And of it makes course, things complicated, you know. <laughs> <laughs> write all of these things down. Yes. And, of course, check out the By David Rosen Patreon, where you yeah. can sign up to subscribe. We've got bonus episodes from us there, a couple bonus episodes from our recent 1996 season. So we'd love your support there. Uh, also bonus content from Piecing It Together and All Rice, No Beans and Dave's music, which you have heard at the beginning and throughout this episode. So great, great stuff. How, uh, how's the Patreon doing, Dave? We've got some patrons. Yeah, you know, it's it's slow and steady, but that's yeah. that's how it goes. We, By the time this time. one goes up, maybe we'll have one more. That's how the, that's <laughs> how the tortoise beat the hair. Let's set that as a goal. One more yes. patron. All right. There you go. So, Jason, what's in our next episode? Well, Josh, it's a little film. It's our foreign film. It's Strozek by Werner Herzog. So I'm going to rest my voice because I feel like <laughs> there will be a lot of Werner Herzoging in it. It's, uh, it's something to talk about, my friend. It is quite something. So tune in next time for Strosek. Thanks for listening to Awesome Movie Year. Thank you for listening to Awesome Movie Year. Make sure to follow Awesome Movie Year on Facebook, at Awesome Movie Pod on Twitter, and at Awesome Movie Year on Instagram. And if you like the show, review us and rate us with five stars on Apple Podcasts. An All Points West production, produced by David Rosen in Las Vegas. What, you got a lacrosse? Got a lacrosse there? No, it's just a monster, oh. as usual, so I, can, so I can stay alert as we talk about uh, movies. You're, the movie you picked. That I picked, yeah, just in general, <laughs> to stay alert. It's early in the morning for me, Jason.